Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our first class of Buddhist chanting. I'm going to help you learn how to do Buddhist chanting over the course of four different classes. I've taught these classes in the past, but for each group learning program, the beginning of that group learning program, I'll go through a series of classes to help you build up your practice. We've already done four classes on breathing mindfulness meditation, four on loving kindness meditation, and now's our time to do four classes on Buddhist chanting before we start moving into rotating between breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today, and I'm really pleased to be able to help you learn how to do Buddhist chanting. First, what we're going to do is I'm going to share with you the why we do Buddhist chanting. And then I'm going to share with you how. We're going to actually go through, I'm going to take each chant slowly but surely and help you build up your practice where you can get a chance to practice this as a group. And we'll even review the translations of the chants because knowing the meaning of the words that you're chanting will be really helpful for you in terms of being able to actually do the chants and put some meaning behind the actual chants. To talk about the benefits of chanting, this will help you to understand the why. You know, why are we even doing chanting? And to start this off, I would like to help you understand that during the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught as strictly an oral tradition. Nothing was written down during his lifetime. So he taught orally and people were remembering his teachings orally throughout their life. And then ultimately, after the Buddha died, they ended up writing down the teachings later in order to preserve them and pass them down from generation to generation. One of the ways that the Buddha helped his students to remember the teachings in this oral tradition is through chanting. He would gather together the people or invite them in, invite his students in to actually recite his teachings word for word for word. So he would deliver the discourses orally, people would remember them, and then they would chant them as part of their practice to remember the teachings. And then that's what ultimately helped them implement the teachings in their daily life because they could remember them word for word for word. So they did this twice a month in order to remember the teachings. And that's how chanting really got started within the Buddhist tradition. And the different traditions of Buddhism will chant in different ways. The Theravada Buddhist tradition, which is what is in Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, uh, it's really spread all throughout the whole world, is what we call the teachings of the elders or the Theravada tradition. In this tradition, we look at the Pali Canon as being the source of our teachings. This is what captured the Buddhist teachings in writing since his lifetime. 
And if you learn how to do Buddhist chanting in the Pali language, then you will be able to go to any temple anywhere that's chanting in Theravada tradition, and you'll be able to chant right along with those people, whether it's in Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos, somewhere in your country, because Theravada Buddhism has been spread all throughout the world. So there will be Theravada Buddhist temples in pretty much every part of the world. And each individual country, of course, has a different dialect because the way that they chant in Sri Lanka versus Thailand is a little bit different, but the source is the same. It's the Pali language. So someone from Thailand who has learned in the Thai tradition of Theravada teachings could chant alongside of someone from Sri Lanka, and it would sound by and large the same. Only a well-trained ear would be able to hear the slight differences between them, but as a group, everyone would be chanting in the same way. If you learn the Mahayana tradition or the Vajrayana tradition, they do chanting as well, but they do it in their local language. So if you're in Vietnam, they will chant in Vietnamese, or if you're in China, they will chant in Chinese and so forth. So you need to know that local language before you can actually do the chanting. But the Theravada tradition is unique in that all places across the world will chant in the same way. So what I share with you in terms of chanting today will actually help you to be able to chant along with other communities, not only our community of practitioners, but if you enter into other communities as well, you'll be able to chant right along with those folks. The Pali chants, they're going to be different from country to country, but also from temple to temple. You'll hear even the exact same chant will be slightly different because of the universal truth of impermanence. The way that I chant is very much similar to what the Thai people chant, because when I went around and I heard people chanting, I would emulate what it is that I heard the Thai people and ordained practitioners and so forth chanting. So if you learn to chant in the way that I chant, it will be very much with a Thai dialect, so to speak, or a Thai accent in terms of the way that we do our chanting. Ultimately today, I will share with you the chants written out with English characters, but if you were Thai and you were in a Thai temple, they will have the same Pali language written out in Thai characters or in other parts of the world, they will use the local language. So I've used the English characters to represent the Pali sounds, the way that I hear them. And we'll study those as we get into actually doing the actual chants today. But in terms of just getting you started to understand the why, I would like to talk with you about the benefits of chanting. When Gautama Buddha taught meditation, he always shared that you should set up mindfulness in front of you before you do meditation. What mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. You understand that from this past Sunday's class, that to practice right mindfulness is to have awareness of the mind, and that's very important in all parts of our life, including meditation. And in meditation is one of the places where we cultivate this awareness of mind, which ultimately becomes the four foundations of mindfulness. What it means to set up mindfulness in front of you before you meditate is to start developing awareness of mind before you actually meditate. If you were to just come in off the street and plop down and start meditating, 
you would find it a bit more challenging and more difficult for you to actually meditate because you're just going from maybe outside to boom to meditate or if you were watching tv and then boom you went to meditate it would be very challenging for the mind to make this shift and gain the most benefit out of the meditation session itself because it hasn't yet set up mindfulness in front of you or this awareness of mind so what you're doing in chanting is you're starting to cultivate some of the same qualities that you're going to actually use when you're in meditation. So that way, from the very beginning of your meditation, you can start getting benefit right away. Whereas if you didn't do chanting and you were just to enter in to meditation, it might be five minutes, 10 minutes, or however long before you actually start reaping the rewards of your meditation. But if you can do these chants, which are about two and a half minutes long, at the beginning, and then I will share with you that you can do them at the end as well. When you do them at the beginning, it eases the mind into meditation because you're starting to develop this awareness of mind, this concentration, and this memory in order to actually do the chants. Because when you first start, you might use a printed page or you might use a book or something like this to start chanting, but ultimately you'll develop your memory. And the mind is very much like a muscle in the body that if you don't exercise it, it won't be strong. So if you aren't lifting weights or you're not exercising, you'll find that your muscles won't be as strong as if you were actually training them and exercising them. So the mind is the same way is that if you exercise the mind and start building this awareness through chanting and you start building this concentration to focus on the chanting and you build this memory through memorizing the chant slowly but surely over time, this exercising of the mind through chanting will actually help you develop those same qualities for meditation, but also outside of meditation, you'll be able to use those same qualities as well. And as you're chanting, you start becoming aware of the breath, which is another important quality that goes along with meditation because in order to gain benefit out of meditation, you need to establish awareness of breath. And if you can start that with your chanting, then by the time you start your meditation session, you'll be that much further ahead in terms of having this awareness of the breath. The chanting also can really slow down the mind, relax the mind and ease it into meditation because rather than just rattling off a bunch of words and moving into chanting, you kind of methodically go through the chants and as you're doing that, it really helps to slow the mind down, relax the mind and ease it into meditation. And then after your meditation, you can ease the mind back out with chanting as well. And this gives you the freedom to go as deep into your meditation as you like. That sometimes a mind is a bit inhibited and someone in meditation might kind of restrain themselves to go too deep in meditation because if they just kind of plop in meditation and plop out of meditation, it's not as conducive to the mind as if you ease the mind in, you'd get this really beneficial meditation session, and then you kind of ease the mind out with chanting. Also, early in practice, depending on how you practice, it might be a bit challenging for you to observe the quality and improvements to the mind as you're developing your practice. Some people in a matter of just a couple of days can be learning the Buddhist teachings and meditating and actually observe improvements to the quality of the mind and the way that they interact with people in their life. But for other people, it might be a little bit more challenging. If the mind is really heavily polluted, it might be more challenging for you to see some of those improvements. 
So if you are chanting regularly, you'll have this audible indication of the improvement to your practice because each time you chant, the sound of the chants will get a little bit better. Each time you chant, your memory will get a little bit better. Your concentration will get better. Your meditation will get better. You will see these improvements as you're actually chanting. And there's this audible sound that helps to kind of encourage and motivate and build this enthusiasm in your practice. Also, as part of this path to enlightenment, it's really important to cultivate respect and gratitude for all people, for all beings, not just human beings, but all beings. And this respect and gratitude helps you to cultivate the proper mental states in terms of interacting with people on a daily basis, where if we have disrespect or we lack appreciation and gratitude for others, then this is going to come across in our intentions, speech, and actions. But if we cultivate this respect and gratitude in our practice and all parts of our practice, then this can kind of overflow into our personal and professional relationships. So one of the things that I think about when I'm actually chanting is how this tradition of Buddhist teachings originated 2,500 years ago with this individual that we call Gautama Buddha. And it was the elders that passed these teachings down for so many centuries until now they're actually reaching you. And having these teachings and observing the condition of the mind improving and the benefit that they create in your life, this can really help you to develop respect and gratitude towards the elders and Gautama Buddha as well. And then by cultivating this gratitude for the elders and Gautama Buddha, it can overflow in your daily life, whether it's with your children, your life partner, your neighbors, any kind of personal or professional relationships, this respect and gratitude for other beings can really overflow as you're cultivating that through your chanting practice and having this respect and gratitude for others. And then as I share things that are beneficial about chanting and why we actually do chanting, I also like to share things that aren't going to be beneficial in terms of chanting or things that chanting are not for. So I typically will teach this way as I'll share with you what meditation is and what meditation isn't, or I'll share with you why I use certain words and other words that you'll hear out there that are used in Buddhist teachings and why I don't use those. So this last point that I would like to share is that Buddhist chanting, there's no mystical, magical benefits associated with chanting. Even though you'll hear people say this, you'll hear people believe this, you'll see people chanting and believing that through chanting that they're going to get to enlightenment you know, instantly, or they're going to get an extra long life, or they're going to eliminate their unwholesome karma, or some beneficial thing, they're going to get some fortune or something by chanting. And chanting has almost taken on somewhat of a likelihood of something like a prayer or something like that, what people might do. But if you remember back to the way that Gautama Buddha originally started doing chanting, that it was just a way to remember the teachings, that there's no mystical, magical things that we can say that are going to instantly produce anything beneficial. The Buddha says this very clearly in his teachings related to prayer and related to other things. And he 
talked about how rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship don't lead to a better condition of mind and a better life. So even though you might see other people that will say, oh, you've got to chant this chant 10 times every day, or you've got to do this thing 100,000 times over the course of your life, these are all things that are based in belief because you can actually test these things out for yourself. That if people say, all right, if you chant these chants, you'll get an extra long life. Okay, well, this is what people say. If you are in that community or at that temple, and that is true, that if you chant this, you'll get an extra long life, then that means there should be a whole bunch of people around that are 150, 250, 300 years old because they've been doing this chant and it's working for them but you won't find a place where people are chanting and there's a whole bunch of people that are 150, 250, 300 years old because this isn't true. It's just a belief that people have. And if people think that, okay, if you chant these chants a certain number of time, you'll be able to get to enlightenment, then there should be a whole bunch of enlightened people around. But one of the first things that the Buddha teaches about getting to enlightenment is that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship don't lead to enlightenment. So if there's people that are attempting to convince you that chanting will lead to enlightenment, then right there, it's an indication that their mind isn't yet enlightened because they still have this belief of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship leading to enlightenment. So there is no mystical, magical benefits associated with chanting. It's purely during the Gautama Buddha's lifetime to remember the teachings. That's what it was used for. Today, we continue this practice forward and different people use it for different reasons. These are the reasons why I use it to develop this mindfulness or awareness of mind prior to meditation, to develop concentration and memory, to be aware of the breath, to slowly ease the mind into meditation. And it provides an audible sound that helps you to see that your practice is improving and it cultivates respect and gratitude towards the elders and towards Gautama Buddha to help you then practice that with other people in your daily life. But I always keep in mind that this practice is not required. There's no requirement to actually chant despite what you might hear in some communities. If this was the case, that chanting is required to get to enlightenment, then you would see on the Eightfold Path, you would see the Buddha would have put a step that says right chanting. But he didn't do that. But what you see and what I share with you is those steps of the Eightfold Path, things like right mindfulness and right concentration and even right intention, right? These steps are kind of embedded into what I'm sharing with you here, that if you understand what you're doing is cultivating the Eightfold Path and developing the Eightfold Path in your life, then you can see here where things that I'm sharing that I use chanting for and how it helps me to cultivate an improved condition of mind, you can see how it maps right alongside of the Eightfold Path. But there's other ways to cultivate these same things. Chanting isn't required. You could do other things to set up mindfulness in front of you because the Buddha never explains how to actually do that, at least in the Pali Canon. He might have explained that during his lifetime, but we don't have that in the Pali Canon about how he suggested to set up mindfulness in front of you other than to start focusing on the breath and bring awareness of the mind to the breath. And he didn't necessarily share to use chanting to ease the mind into meditation, but he definitely talked about that as part of his teachings in terms of allowing the mind to ease into meditation and 
This way you actually get the real benefit out of the meditation itself. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have before we start introducing you to the actual chants themselves. I would like to give you guys a chance to ask any and all questions you have about chanting, whether it's something that I've shared with you here today or something that maybe you've heard other places that you would like to check in on and ask questions about. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section. Our moderator, Miranda, will see that and be sure that it gets asked during the class. And then if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Yes, sir. Uh, I do have a question. The number of times that a chant is repeated, does that have any meaning to it, or is that just tradition being followed, sir? Oftentimes, you'll see chants being recited three times uh, in the Theravada tradition. Whenever you see the number three in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, is it stands for the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, because these are the three things that the Buddha shared that you need to have confidence in, in order for you and each individual would need to have that in order to actually get to enlightenment. So if we have confidence that the Buddha was enlightened and that he was, in fact, an actual Buddha, then we would be interested to learn and understand his teachings. If we have confidence in the teachings, it means that we've investigated the teachings to a certain level of degree, and we can see the improvement to the condition of our mind ourselves. so we have confidence in his actual teachings, which someone just starting out may not have confidence in his teachings, and that can be kind of helpful. It can kind of create this inquisitive mind where you investigate the teachings, and as you investigate them and start practicing them, then you slowly build up your confidence as you see the condition of the mind improving. And then you would need to have confidence in the community, that the community of practitioners that you're learning around and that you're practicing with, that they're practicing well, that you should see politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect amongst the community of practitioners that you're in. If you see a lot of people judging each other or degrading each other, talking down to each other, then this shows you that the community isn't really practicing the teaching so well, and that may not be the right community for you. You would like to be a part of a community of practitioners where the teachings are being learned, they're being investigated, they're being practiced, people are treating each other very polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And with that confidence in this community, now you can gain access to a teacher and other practitioners that will slowly help you see this path to enlightenment so that you can practice it more and more closely. So in this tradition, you'll see three a lot, and it means confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. There's other traditions that will use other numbers for various reasons, but I am not familiar with those since I've never looked at those teachings very closely. Um, it does not appear that we have any other questions this time, sir. All right. Well, let's go into looking at the actual chants themselves, and I will help you understand how to chant these, and I'll actually do them myself first, and then invite you guys to actually do them, and then we'll look at the translations together. This first chant, it's referred to as the triple gem or the triple jewel, and that relates to the things that we just talked about, the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, because this is what the Buddha shared that a person would need to have in order to actually attain enlightenment. Because if you lacked confidence in the Buddha, why would you even give his 
teachings a, a glance, right? Or if you didn't have access to his actual teachings, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. And if you weren't part of a community, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment because you wouldn't have access to other people who would be able to share with you what the actual teachings are. So it's the triple gem or the triple jewel that each individual practitioner will ultimately need to have confidence in in order to be able to get to enlightenment. So this particular chant, it's three individual phrases, and one is for the Buddha, one is for the teachings, and one is for the community. I suspect this chant and the other chants were actually created after the lifetime of the Buddha. These aren't chants that the Buddha taught, because as you'll see in the translations, here the chants are talking about respect and homage to him and to his teachings and to the community. And a Buddha isn't going to teach people, you know, bow down to me, respect me, thou shalt listen to me always kind of thing. Instead, a Buddha is just going to be practicing the teachings, sharing the teachings, making themselves available to others. And then as others are improving the condition of their mind and they're seeing the condition of their mind improving, they're going to have a lot of respect for that teacher. And that teacher is going to, in this case, the Buddha, is going to be practicing right intention, right speech, right action, and all the other teachings in such a wholesome way, in such a wise way, that they're going to be putting out nothing but polite, kind, friendly, and respectful interactions. So that's what's going to end up coming back to them. So by the time the Buddha died, after teaching for 45 years, there was a massive number of people that had an enormous amount of respect for him. He didn't teach people to bow down and respect him, but instead people chose to do that as they observed how polite, kind, friendly, respectful this man was, as they learned his teachings and they observed the condition of their mind moving to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. So these chants, as you'll see, they're really designed to help us to maintain and cultivate that confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in the community, rather than the Buddha actually teaching people to pay respect to him. So this first one, I'll just do it once and allow you to listen to it. And then I'll kind of walk you guys through and help you see how to do this. And we'll do it together as a group. Whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom, we can all be doing this together. You'll be able to hear me chanting. You'll be interested to leave your mute on, but then you can be chanting right along with me. So here, let me do this first one so you can hear what it sounds like. Savakato Mahakavata Tammo Damang Namasami Supatipano Mahakavato Savakasanko Sanghang Namami. Okay, let me share with you a few things now that you guys have had a chance to hear this. 
is there's natural pauses in the chant, which are wonderful places for you to take kind of a little breath because it's kind of rare that someone can chant all the way through. I'm sure there's people that can, but you'd like to probably take a little bit of a breath so the mind can be at ease and you're not really taxing the body for a lot of air. So where you would do that is at the end of each one of these phrases. So the way that this one's written out is where it says, Right there is a nice little place to take a little breath. You see a period there? That's a place for a nice deep breath before you start the next phrase. And typically at the end of this phrase, people will bow. And if you're in a temple environment, people are oftentimes sitting on the floor, so they will actually bow to the floor. But if you're just sitting in a chair, you can also just raise your hands up to your forehead the way that I showed in the way that I did during the chant. Typically your thumbs are up to your eyebrows and that's showing a high level of respect. And then here, that's a nice little place for a breath. Again, a bow with a nice breath because there's a period there. And then this last one, there's actually two places where you take a breath because it's a longer phrase. Kind of a little quarter breath there. Little breath there. And then a bow before we move on to the actual next chant. But we'll do this, excuse me, we'll do this one first before we move on to the next one. So let's do this together as a group. What you'll do is just bring your hands together, palm to palm, and place that at your sternum. And then you'll just take a nice breath. And now we'll do this together. Breath. Bow with a breath. Little breath. Bow with the breath. Little breath. Little breath. So now we bow with a breath. Okay. Let's do this again. And I won't cue the breath. We'll just kind of roll through it just kind of naturally without me cueing the breath and the bow. Nice deep breath. Little 
So let's uh, go through the translations here so that you can understand the translations. That first phrase is the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self-awakened. Here, what a Buddha is or a perfectly enlightened one is, is they're self-awakened. They're awakened to enlightenment without the guidance of any teachers. That's the first criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha. And then there's other criteria as well. They share the teachings for the rest of their life, helping countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And they leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. So being rightly self-awakened is the first criteria of actually being an actual Buddha. We call a Buddha the perfectly enlightened one. Because they don't have teachers, they don't have extra baggage, and we consider them perfectly enlightened. In other words, if a person attains enlightenment through teachers, which everyone else except a Buddha would need to do, they may get to enlightenment, but they're going to have a little bit of extra baggage, maybe 10, 20, 30 percent of things that didn't necessarily lead to their enlightenment. Maybe it was the 70, 80, or 90 percent of the things that actually led to their enlightenment, but they're still doing this other 10 or 20 or 30 percent of things that isn't necessarily contributing to their enlightenment, but they still do it just out of respect or admiration for their teacher, perhaps. Where a Buddha, because they don't have any teachers, if they do a certain meditation and it works to improve the condition of their mind, they know that that's the path to enlightenment and they share that as part of their teachings. Whereas if they did a certain meditation and it wasn't working to improve the condition of the mind, then they would discard it and they would no longer use it. Where a particular person who's learned from a teacher, they will sometimes keep that meditation around, for example, just out of admiration and respect for their teacher, even though it's not truly contributing to their enlightenment. But they might have collected up a bunch of other teachings that actually led to their enlightenment. So a person who is enlightened, we don't consider them perfectly enlightened. We consider a Buddha to be perfectly enlightened. And that's why it says here, the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self-awakened. That's distinguishing him as an actual Buddha. I bow down before the awakened, perfectly enlightened one. And that's that bow that people will do as a way of showing respect for this 45 years of teaching and then all the lives that he led, that life and others, where he struggled in order to get to enlightenment and bring these teachings forth in the world. We're showing respect and gratitude to him for bringing these teachings into the world. Then the next phrase the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. Well expounded means well explained. 
when you start learning with the words of the Buddha and you see the level of detail that he actually explains the teachings, he really expounds upon them. He doesn't leave any vague statements. He doesn't talk in kind of innuendo or he doesn't talk in ways that would be difficult to understand. He talks very clear, very precise, very concise, very thorough. So that's why people during his lifetime and even now we can see his teachings were well expounded or well explained by him. I pay respect to the teachings. And then that last statement, the community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples has practiced well. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were many different teachers that were teaching what they considered to be a path to enlightenment. The Buddha himself knew that it was his teachings that lead to enlightenment. And he knew that these other teachings that people were sharing weren't going to necessarily lead to enlightenment, but he focused on sharing what he knew to be the teachings. And ultimately, we know it's his teachings that led to enlightenment because here we are 2,500 years later still discussing his teachings where all those other teachers, we don't really have any inclination of what they were teaching 100% because those teachings have fallen by the wayside. And it's this community that's practicing his teachings. Things like right view and right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These teachings and others, we can see that when somebody deeply learns these and practices them, that it transforms their life, it transforms their mind, it transforms the way they interact with others. So it's his community of practitioners that are practicing well. In showing respect and gratitude, that last statement, I pay respect to the community because this community of practitioners who you're coming into are essentially dedicated to their own growth individually. But if you need support or you need encouragement, they're there to help you as well. It's these community of practitioners that are going to help you on your way to enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment by yourself. You would need to have a teacher. You would need to have access to the teachings. You would need to have a community of practitioners that are willing to support you and encourage you along the way. But of course, you are the one that has to do the work. But this community is doing work to help you as well. And they receive certain help in order to get to where they are in their practice. So oftentimes people are more than willing to help others as they seek guidance. So we also cultivate that respect for the community of people around us that are helping you by potentially having a conversation here or there, or you reach out for help or support, and they will be there to help you if you need that. So that's what this particular chant is all about, is the triple gem or the triple jewel, the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, cultivating this respect and gratitude towards them. And also, as you develop your practice, you can hear the sound, how it will really ease the mind into meditation and helping you to get more benefit out of your meditation. What questions, if any, do you guys have on this particular chant? Yes, sir. Um, Tonka asked, is chanting in a group more beneficial than chanting on your own? I do notice that there's a lot of energy when you chant in a group because everybody's harmonizing with each other and you can hear the sound. You know, one person chanting by themselves, okay, that sounds great and that's probably how you need to practice. But when you come together with a group, it really harmonizes and you get that, you know, that sound. So you'll find that the benefits that I mentioned, those are benefits that you'll cultivate on your own through chanting. And then when you chant with others, 
it really takes you to another level in terms of the sound and the harmony. But that's not to say that it's more beneficial to chant alone versus with other people. It's just a difference in the sound. All those benefits that I mentioned can be cultivated as an individual independent practitioner or in a group of people. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, does not appear that we have any more questions at this time, sir. All right, so let's go to the next chant, which I just call it the Natmo Tasa because that's what it starts out with. And it's essentially respect to Gautama Buddha. And this is typically an easier chant for people to learn. And this is oftentimes the chant that you might begin with. If you would like to learn all three chants at one time and practice those all at one time, you can. But if you're looking to just kind of do one and kind of build some confidence with that and then expand out into the other ones, it might be this one that you practice to build up your confidence before you actually do the others. Because the syllables in this one are actually showing up in the other chants as well. And here in Thailand, if someone has a little child, as soon as they start mouthing a little bit, you know, one years old, two years old, three years old, they will typically start teaching them this chant. So if you think of yourself as almost like a child growing up in this tradition, then this might be one that you decide to do all by itself until you build confidence and then expand out and venture into the others. Or some people like to just learn them all at the same time, and you can surely do that. So I'll do this one first and let you hear it. Then I'll go through and show you the breaths and then we can do it again together like we did before. So here's how this one sounds. Nap more so this is just the same chant repeated three times, right? Because of threes, right? It's a chant that's dedicated to Gautama Buddha, but we typically will do it three times because of the reasons that I shared with you is that whenever you see the number three, it's the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. Here, the breath is after Pakawato. So it's Napmodhasa Pakawato little breath arahato samasamputasa and then here we don't bow after each individual phrase we just do that for the arahang samasamputasa okay and by the way i didn't mention this exactly but all these chants that i'm sharing with you they're very common chants so not only can you easily chant them with all members of Theravada Buddhist communities, but if you go to an event of Theravada Buddhist community, these will typically be the chants that they will start out with and kind of start the event or initiate the event with. So not only can you chant with people, but you'll see this at the very beginning of a lot of events in Theravada Buddhist temples. So let's do this one together. Bring your palms together at your sternum, like I mentioned. And then take a nice deep breath and we'll just do this three times together. 
take a little sip of water and get your breath if you like I'm gonna take a little sip here all right so we'll do this one again together um, and I won't cue the breath this time so just helped you get familiar with it and while you're taking a little break I'll let you know that in this book in chapter 11 I have these chants written out so you can use that as a way to practice these and also on our website, as well as in our Facebook group, I have a file, which is a one-page quick reference sheet that you can print front and back if you like and leave it in your meditation area so that wherever you typically will meditate, you can pull that out, chant before and after your meditations. That'll really help you to get your practice going. So you can look in the book or use that quick reference sheet. So let's do this one again together, and then I'll talk about the translations. Take a nice deep breath. Okay, so that's our second chant. And what the translations are on this one is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. So essentially the same meaning as the first phrase of that last one, essentially. And this one is a very common one. Again, it's something that if you'd like to break down the chants and just kind of practice them one at a time, this might be the one that you decide to focus in on. But some people like to actually do all of them at one time, so you can do that as well. Any questions on this chant? Yes, sir. Not this chant in particular, but just in general. As we are learning these chants, is the only time we can practice them right before we are going into meditation, or could we practice them at different times throughout the day, sir? Yeah, you can practice at both of those times, you know, during meditation, you know, before and after, and even just do an isolated training session just for the chants. I used to do this frequently as I would just go chant. And even though here we do this one, you know, prior to meditation, we do each chant one time on the way in, on the way out. You can easily do these chants two or three times on the way in, two or three times on the way out as you're building up your practice. Or if you're doing that isolated practice of the chanting, you can just go into whatever area you will typically chant in 
do each chant two, three, four, five, six times if you like, and then that's it. And don't even meditate. So that's an option for you guys as well. Yes, thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. And then as you build up your practice, this will be available for you when you're actually meditating. You'll find it'll be really nice addition to your practice. Yes, sir. Also, with the chanting, should we be including that in the amount of time that we're meditating? Because the goal of meditation is 20 to 30 minutes, three times, two to three times a day. Should we be including that in this 20 to 30 minutes or not, sir? It's up to you. I mean, to do the chants all the way through, it takes about two and a half minutes on the way in and two and a half on the way out. So that's five minutes right there. If you meditated and combined this in and you made it a total of 30, that would be fine because from what I understand, scientists who research the changes of the brain related to training of the mind, they say that meditation of 25 minutes or more is what they observe improves the condition of the brain when they're studying the brain because we're actually training the mind. So it would still work out to be perfect and in sync with what they're seeing as well. But I tend to look for 30 minutes of meditation, you know, in meditation. But if you would like to include it as all one, you know, that's fine. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear we have any more questions at this time, sir. All right, so let's go to the next one, which again, doesn't really have an official name, but I just call it the ETP So. This is a, another common chant that you'll hear amongst Theravada Buddhist community. So I'll go through and I'll chant it first. I'll show you the breaths and then we'll do it together and we'll talk about the translations as well. So here's how it sounds. Itipiso Mahakewa Arahang Samasamoto Wichacharang Samuno Sakato Rokawito Anu tero purisa dama sati sata tawa manu sanam puto pakwati. There's kind of a little bow at the end just to kind of finish it off. Okay, so here let me help you with the actual breaths. The way this one works is there's natural pauses that you can take a breath. Iti piso makawa. Right there, there's a nice little breath. Arahang samasamoto. Breath. Wichacharanang samuno. There's a breath there. Sakatorokawito. Nice breath there. Anu teropurisa. Little breath. Dama sati satatawapmanusanam. Little breath. 
ओ तो Now these breaths that I'm guiding you guys in, this is where I decided to take breaths because I heard these natural pauses in the chants and I was like, oh, that's a great place to take a breath. Let me take a breath there. So if you would like to take a breath there, you're welcome to, but it's not like you're required to. It's your practice. You can choose to take a breath wherever you like. I'm just kind of cluing you into some little shortcuts and ways to think about where you can get a breath. So don't feel like you're tied to this or you have to do it this way, but just something for you to keep in mind. Also, this chant, I've heard some people, rather than at the end where I kind of drag it out, where I say, Pakawati, I think it sounds really nice doing that. I hear other people that will say, Pakawati, you know, and they'll just end it, right? So just like everything else, this universal truth of impermanence affects the chants as well. You'll see people write them out differently than what I write them out. You'll see people have a slightly different dialect or different pronunciation. You'll see people do them just a little bit differently. You'll see some people will translate them a little bit differently. It's not that one person's right and another person is wrong. This is just impermanence. So I'm sharing with you the way that I chant and you're welcome to do it that way. But you'll see some other ways as well because of the universal truth of impermanence. So let's go ahead and do this one together. Same thing, you have your palms together at your sternum. I'll cue the breath the first time as we go through. So take a nice deep breath. Iti piso mahakewa. Breath. Arahan samasam hoto. Breath. Vichacharanang samuno. Breath. Sakatorokawito. Breath. Anu teropurisa. Breath. Dhamma sati satatawa manu Breath. Poto pakawati. Okay. So give you guys a little break here. Just a little time to let the, stung, the tongue stop vibrating. <laughs> Easy for me to say, right? <laughs> let the tongue stop vibrating a little bit. And then we'll go through it again. And I won't cue the breaths this time. Okay. Get a little drink. All right. So let's go through again. Iti piso makawa arahang samasamoto wichacharanang samuno sakatoro kawito Anu tero purisa dama sati satatawa manu sanam poto pakwati. Okay. All 
So let's look at the translations here. Again, starting off with, he is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one. The next line is consummate in knowledge and conduct. Consummate means like a high degree of skill or a high degree of ability. So the Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one, because they learned to get to enlightenment on their own, their wisdom is very deep and very profound. They have this really high degree of wisdom or knowledge in their moral conduct is going to be of a very high degree as well because they're practicing what it is that they teach. They're not teaching one thing and practicing something different. They're actually teaching and then they're practicing that what they are teaching. So they have this high degree of wisdom or knowledge and they have this high degree of conduct or moral conduct. One who has gone the good way. This is someone who's not in the darkness, but they're in the light. They've gone the good way. They're no longer having a mind that is polluted or defiled. It's enlightened. They've gone the good way. They're walking towards the light and have attained enlightenment. They're in this enlightened mental state. Knower of the worlds. What this relates to is the five realms of existence. A Buddha, as part of their awakening, would have observed their previous existences in those five realms of existence. And in those five realms of existence, having observed their past lives, they would know of those five realms. And that's why we call them the knower of the worlds. The worlds are the five realms, and they know of those worlds because they are familiar with their existences in those other realms. Unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. A Buddha is essentially a person who is training human beings, right? A Buddhist teacher is a person who's training human beings. So a Buddha is an unexcelled trainer. Because of their deep wisdom, they are going to have the ability to train human beings in a way that others won't necessarily have. Even if these other people are enlightened, they're not going to have the same degree of wisdom as an actual Buddha. Of those who can be taught, those that can be taught are those who choose to be taught. Because if somebody has a lot of ego and they lack confidence and they're not even interested in giving a teacher the time of day to even learn from that person, they can't be taught because they're not choosing to be taught. So a Buddha who is an unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught or those who choose to be taught. There's going to be certain people during a Buddha's lifetime that choose not to actually learn and who choose not to learn these teachings and progress to enlightenment. Maybe they're just really mired in central desire and they're just really bogged down into certain aspects of life and they're not interested in in learning for one reason or another so they can't be taught it's only a person who chooses to be taught that actually can be taught teacher of humans and heavenly beings so a buddha is of course a teacher of human beings because human beings can attain enlightenment but also heavenly beings can attain enlightenment as well the lower realms of hell, animal, and afflicted spirits, those beings can actually attain enlightenment in those existences, 
But as they're reborn and move up to the human and heavenly realms, they can attain enlightenment from those realms. But it's only the human and heavenly realm that can actually attain enlightenment. And there's, of course, lots of depictions of the Buddha teaching human beings, but there's also depictions of him teaching heavenly beings during his lifetime as well, that he would be kind of in an open field, for example, at nighttime, and the sky would light up and heavenly beings would be interested in learning what it is that would actually lead to enlightenment because heavenly beings are still in the cycle of rebirth and they need to escape the cycle of rebirth. They need to actually learn and practice to be able to escape the cycle of rebirth. So a teacher like a Buddha is a teacher of human beings and heavenly beings. And then lastly, awakened and perfectly enlightened, just kind of emphasizing that as part of this chant. So what questions do you guys have on this particular chant? Sir, there may be the misconception when doing this chant that somehow the deceased Gautama Buddha is going to hear this and give you merit or something like that. Um, That's not the case, right, sir? That is not the case. That's correct. We're not chanting to the Buddha and asking anything for him. He has done his work. He over multiple lifetimes got to enlightenment and then that last lifetime spent 45 years sharing the teachings he's done right he's not coming back to this world ever again and there's no thing else that he can do at this point to actually help us so we're not praying to him we're not asking for his intervention he's not capable of doing anything for us he's already done the work he's already shared the teachings now it's up to us to do the work to learn reflect and practice so this chanting that we're doing That's why I focused on the benefits of being benefits for you in terms of cultivating the mind to develop mindfulness, to develop concentration, memory, to ease the mind into meditation, to cultivate respect and gratitude. These are qualities that are going to improve the condition of the mind and help you get to enlightenment. But the Buddha has already done the work to be able to help you get to enlightenment. Now it's up to each individual being to do the work to get to enlightenment themselves. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. And Tonka asks, is it possible to chant in English? Yeah, there's some communities that will chant in English. I haven't done that, at least in this community. When I used to do chanting in America, I had a community of practitioners there that I was teaching Thai massage to. And as part of that community, we also practiced some Buddhist teachings. And there's a particular chant that we did in English there. But I've never done any of the chanting here that you see in English, but there are some communities that will. And if you'd like to, you're more than welcome to do that. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, Also, there may be times where a practitioner may not be able to chant, at least not out loud. Can this be something that you can sit quietly and recite in the mind, sir? Yeah, that can be helpful as well. When I used to take flights from America to Thailand and back, you know, it's a 24 hour flight. And of course, I would be doing meditation and all of that on the plane as part of my daily practice. So I would do the chants in my mind rather than out loud because I wasn't interested in disturbing other people. Or there are some cases where, like even now, my son will sometimes be sleeping in my room and I'll need to be meditating at night. And I'll sometimes do the chants quietly on my own without 
disrupting him or if I'm in a hotel that has very thin walls rather than chanting out loud, you know, I'll just do them quietly, things like this, or in a hospital or something like this. So you can feel free to do it quietly in your own mind because it reinforces the memory. It reinforces the mindfulness or awareness of mind and the concentration. You're not getting the breath typically involved, but you're getting all those other benefits that we talked about. Yes, sir. Also, when we are maybe in a position where we don't have the time to meditate right then, can reciting one of these chants in the mind work as kind of a refresher to the Eightfold Path and to our own practice and how we should be conducting ourselves? Yeah, you know, anything you're doing to cultivate those qualities of the Eightfold Path is helpful. I used to actually chant this in the shower sometimes in the morning before I was, you know, off to work because the acoustics in the bathroom are usually really nice and it kind of fills out your voice and kind of helps you to see the potential of how you can actually chant. So then when I would be chanting somewhere else, I would remember how it sounded when I was in the bathroom, and then it would help me to cultivate that same type of chanting in other places where the acoustics aren't so good. So any time you're doing anything to cultivate the mind towards these qualities that the Buddha shared is really helpful. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. It does not appear that we have any more questions at this time, sir. Okay, well, what I would like to do then to help you guys learn these chants is now let's go through them from beginning to end, doing all three of them. And I will change the slides so that those of you guys that are following along either in Zoom or on the social media, you guys will be able to see the slides and we'll just chant them as if we're doing them leading into meditation where we'll do the arahang or the triple gem and then we'll after that one going through the three phrases we'll just go right into the natmo tasa do that one and then we'll go right into the etp so and this will build your practice of moving from one chant to the other okay so bring your hands together at your sternum take a nice deep breath and then we'll chant together. Arahang Sammasamoto Mahakewa Potang Mahakewanang Apiwati Hilmi Sawakato Makawata Tamu Damang Namasami Supatipano Makawato Sawakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmorasapakawato Arahato Samasaputasa Napmore 
Some communities they clap after they chant. Yay! <laughs> All right, so that's our chanting that I do prior to meditation and after meditation. And I do that in each of our group sessions together when we actually do chants together. I'm sorry, when we do meditation sessions together, either online or in person, you will hear me lead in with chants and end with chants. So now the idea is, is that you can practice this on your own between now and next Wednesday. And then any time that we're doing meditation together, you'll be able to chant along together, whether it's in person or online. And you build up your practice. And then when we're together, you'll hear this harmony of our chanting together as we chant together. And it can really fill out the room and really help us to benefit our meditation practice. So next week on Wednesday, I will do another session of learning Buddhist chanting. I won't go through the why and go through each individual chant like we did today, but instead what I'll do is I'll just practice with us going through the chants. And then after we practice the chants a little bit, we'll actually do the chants and then go into meditation. I'll even open up to any questions that you guys might have, whereas if you would like to get personal guidance, sometimes people like to kind of chant individually. And then when you chant individually, then I can give you some pointers on how you're doing and maybe help you see where you can maybe improve and some things that are going well in your chant. So that's something that we can do next week as well. But between now and then, if you're practicing, then when we actually get together next week, you'll be able to get that much further along each one of these four sessions as we're chanting together. And then on Sunday, we'll be doing the talk on chapter six from the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. Chapter six is titled The Middle Way, Walking the Middle Way. This is a really short chapter to read. But this is going to help you to kind of frame all the different teachings of the Buddha, particularly the Eightfold Path that we just talked about this past Sunday, is that it will help you understand this very simple yet very profound teaching that I feel that the Buddha shared in relationship to the middle way. So that's our plan for this Sunday and next Wednesday. Let me pause just one more time, see if there's any questions that might have come up from 
this particular class or anything else that you guys are interested in learning or asking questions about from our previous classes or anything that you're reading in the book or anything that you're encountering in your own practice. I like to use these Wednesday classes just to be open free form questions to allow you the opportunity to get some help with your practice. So you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom or electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions about anything that you like. Um, yes, sir. When a practitioner first begins with a meditation um, practice, they can tend to get attached to certain times of day. And how do you suggest that they kind of head this off, sir? Yeah, so wherever you see in any aspects of your life, whether it's meditation or anything else, that you see the mind is kind of craving permanence, or even if you don't know whether it's a craving or not, but you just see you have a tendency, like in your example, to be meditating at exactly the same time every day, where you see that you should introduce impermanence. So if you notice that you put on your shoes the exact same way every day, or if you notice that you eat the same exact breakfast every day, or you go to sleep at exactly the same time every day, anytime you see like these patterns of things that are being done exactly the same all the time, there's a tendency for your mind to grab onto that and lock into that. And particularly other things too, like say you are going to an event like this retreat that we're having in America, Oftentimes, students will come in and sit in exactly the same spot every day. They'll come in and sit at the exact same spot, sit at the exact same spot, because the mind, even though you're intellectually aware of impermanence, the mind just has this tendency to do exactly the same things all the time. So you introduce impermanence. So in your example, Miranda, if you're observing that you're meditating at 8 a.m. every morning and you just kind of are waiting for that opportunity and you keep doing that, bounce it around, you know, 730, 7.45, 8.15, 8.30, 9 o'clock. Don't give the mind the opportunity to grab onto anything. I observed that the mind was becoming attached to meditating in exactly the same spot all the time with the exact same cushion. Sometimes I would or actually most of the time at the beginning, I would put a blanket over my lap because it was a little bit cool. And I was like, all right, let me just strip this down. So there'd be sometimes I wouldn't use the blanket. Sometimes I would. Sometimes I wouldn't use that cushion. Sometimes I would. Sometimes I would meditate in my room, sometimes in the living room. Sometimes I would go out to temples. I would go to parks. I would move around. So you would like to introduce this impermanence after you get your meditation practice well established. So after you get four, maybe up to eight weeks of meditating and you feel like things are moving pretty well and you're kind of observing that the mind is getting established in meditation, there you would like to kind of challenge it. And anything that you see that you're using repetitively in your meditation practice, you would like to strip that out and bounce the mind around into different environments and different settings. So you hear different sounds, there's different lighting, different times of day. You don't always use the same cushion because the mind's going to want to grab onto all this stuff. And you're trying to train it not to do that. So almost think of the mind as like this third entity. And this is where it really helps to think of the body as one thing, the mind as something else, and then there's this person, which is the combination of these things, the body and the mind. So if you think of the mind as this third entity, wherever you see that mind trying to latch on to anything at all, mix it up, change things around, do things differently. And this will help your mind to get acclimated and accepting of 
the universal truth of impermanence and not even give it a chance to grab onto anything and attempt to hold onto it permanently. Because the danger is, is if you allow it to keep doing that, those things that you're grabbing onto and that you might be grabbing onto for three months or six months or whatever it is, those things aren't permanent and it's only a matter of time before they're gone. So if you allow the mind to go three months, six months, a year, two years of meditating in the exact same way, at some point, those variables are going to change and now your mind's going to be shaken up. But if you choose to change these variables around, you're doing it on your terms rather than allowing it to happen by itself where the mind is more likely to get shaken up. You kind of train it right up front to not get attached and not cling to these things. So you're approaching this on your terms and ensuring that you're implementing impermanence and infusing impermanence into all the things you do. Even if you observe that you drive the same way to work every day, mix it up, take a different way every once in a while and just see how it goes. Even if it takes you an extra five minutes or 10 minutes to get to work. Oh, well, just do that every once in a while, just so the mind doesn't get used to that. Where you feel the mind wants to drive down this one street, be like, nope, I'm not giving you that today. You're going over here. And this will be really helpful for the mind. Yes, thank you, sir. That's very wise. It does not appear we have any more questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, I would just like to thank all of you for joining for today's class. And I'll invite you to attend this Sunday for our group learning program at the same time, 9 o'clock Thai time, whatever time that is in your time zone. And then, of course, next Wednesday for our second part of this four-part series, where I'm sharing with you Buddhist chanting. So have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Take care. Bye-bye. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.